So welcome back, everyone. Well, greetings again. And I'll invite people to uh, turn on your video. That would be helpful. It's nice for me, very nice for me to be able to see people as I'm speaking. So if you can do that without having a, a bandwidth issue, that's, uh, that's very, very helpful for me. I think, I think for the sense of community. Okay. So thank you for that. Last week, I spoke about uh, practicing with fear. I think it was the second or third time we were exploring that. And last week I said, well, what we'll probably do next week, meaning today, is we'll explore uh, how to practice with fear, particularly when it arises in a social context. So that was my that was my intention that I set like a week ago, right after our last session. And little did I know what would occur the day before, the day before our session. So and I, I really only heard the news um, early evening yesterday, actually. I don't, I don't listen to news all day long, typically. Um, so actually what I want to do is to continue with this theme of uh, practicing uh, with fear. And in the, the last part of the talk, connect that with fear related to the, the social dimension. That's my intention. So again, for people who've just come back, if it works to have your video on, it's very much appreciated so I can, so I can see everyone or as many people as possible, if, that's, if that works for you. So I want to review some what we explored uh, last time. We, we explored especially different types of fear and different ways to practice with fear. And I want to ask uh, Carlita, I, have, I love this image which is in my study, which has been there probably for, I don't know, 15, 20 years from the Bread and Puppet Theater in Vermont, one of their productions, which could be uh, inspiration for us, the story of one who set out to study fear. It's a very integral part of practice. So maybe we may remember this, and maybe I'll, maybe I'll put up that image uh, on uh, the Dharma Seed website along with the recording, because I, I really love that. So. So that's, that's our, really, that's, that's a part of our practice to explore fear when it arises. And as I'll, as I'll explore myself a little bit later, fear is an inherent part of the process of spiritual practice. And there's a very interesting way that as we come into new understandings and insights, as we deepen, we also open up to further fears, many of which we didn't even know we had. You know, that we, we can deepen and are really, another way of saying it is that every level of growth and learning and deepening brings a new fear that we have to deal with. I think that's true. It would be nice to say, that learning and growth just is very nice and smooth, and we don't have fear or difficulties. How many people think that's true? I'm, I'm yeah, okay. Uh, yeah. Even as, even as we can keep increasingly sort of a base of stability and understanding. So last time we had a, a, a wonderful uh, listing of different types of fear. And Carlita uh, sent me the 
types of fear identified in the uh, chat from last time. I just wanted to name some of these to remind us and say a little bit about them. What are, what are we afraid of? You know, we can be afraid of many things, and some of them can be there on the social level. We can be, we can be afraid of, uh, of death. Death is the big one, right, for many of us. You know, although, as was remarked in the chat, we may be afraid, more afraid of a painful death than of, than of dying. That's what I found. I've sometimes, you know, actually my first uh, teaching that I did when I was uh, sort of late 20s, early 30s, I taught at a school and I was asked to teach courses in death and dying. And I found that people were more afraid of painful death than of death itself. You know, and that, that may resonate with you. And there's also, for many, a fear of aging and loss. That there's a lot of fear there. You know, losing uh, mental capacities or losing different bodily capacities. There's very much was listed by many people a fear of uh, pain and injury. One person remarked on a fear of cars while riding a bike. That was just that was just there. And as we listen, we'll, we can go back to a distinction that I've I've made, which is the distinction between ways that we can work. You know that fear can actually be helpful and skillful for us, and ways that fear is not skillful. Ways that fear can be caught up in confusion and delusion and um, not helpful responses. But in, but in many cases, fear can be quite helpful and skillful. You know, the obvious one being the fear that I feel where, when I'm near a cliff or the fear that when I'm in actually in real danger, right? That, uh, you know, we know that at the level of the brain and nervous system and organism, Fear uh, works on our physiology in a multiplicity of ways that lets us sometimes have more energy maybe to run or to respond. It uh, gets our heart beating faster and so forth. There are a whole set of responses that we actually share with a great variety of other living beings, all the way down to very, very small, tiny beings who seem to manifest something like fear, a strong reaction when there's a threat, right? So it's something that unites us with, with many beings. So the fear of pain, of injury, of loss. Uh, one person said, I work at a psychiatric hospital. I am afraid my clients will get hurt. Fear of feeling physical discomfort. Fear of an early death. Fear of the malevolence of others fear of disease, fear of public speaking. And I, I mentioned last time how the polls show that more people are afraid of public speaking than of death, which suggests that public speaking can involve a kind of death if we mess up. So I'm trying to tune into that fear right now and hopeful I don't mess up too much. But uh, you know, there, you know whether you know whether it's a little bit of adrenaline from public speaking. It's very interesting, right, to see that. You know, and I think I mentioned that the first time I ever did public speaking when I was in my early twenties, I was uh, I was petrified. You know, being a somewhat introverted person, and I had the experience of my knees moving like whoo, like that. You know, for the whole time for. 30, 40 minutes. It was kind of remarkable. I haven't had that experience since then. The knees just moving multiple feet at a time. Really, it's kind of crazy, you know. And so public speaking, um, fear of strong emotions, one person said. Fear of inadequacy. So there are a whole set of personal fears that can be there. Fear of inadequacy. Fear of causing harm in what I say or what I do in my relationships. Um, fear, one person said, I, uh, I know I have a fear of actually succeeding. 
right? You know, so we can see this. Uh, uh, fear coming from loneliness and isolation, right? Um, fear of my own confusion and skillfulness doing something harmful. Fear of working with a doctor who is, who is not conventional, right? And so, so many types of fear and very helpful to list. What are my top five? This, is, I think, is an important aspect of practicing with fear, knowing what my top five are, identifying them. And then we, you know, then we talk, and here I'll talk about individual practice, and I'll come back later to practicing with uh, pain that comes from the social world. But we have these multiple ways of practicing, and I like to sort of uh, identify three main ways of practicing that are really there in any part of our, our lives. And if they're helpful to, to remember, because sometimes we can practice just in one way, missing the other two, and then something can be lacking. So I think the, the, the full range of our practice involves, um, the simplifying, but involves mindfulness and wisdom, seeing clearly, number one, the, the response of the kind and compassionate heart, number two, we could talk about heart practices, and then number three, skillful action. Really, really crucial to have some way of responding. You know, and I'll mention right now a powerful line that stayed with me. I think I first heard it 20 years ago from Angeles Arian. Some of you may know her. She died several years ago. You know, a, a wonderful teacher and writer. And she had a one-liner that said, action alleviates anxiety. Really, really crucial. I'll come back to that and explore that. It's really fundamental. And we can do a lot of inner practice, and we can still have the anxiety or fear, but when we have a skillful response or action, when I know I'm doing something, something radically changes. I think that's true very true for the social dimension. Like if I know I'm, I have, I have found that personally in many, in many, many ways. So bearing that sort of threefold way of practicing in mind can be helpful. So we can bring the mindfulness into uh, being more clear on what's happening at the level of the body, knowing those different uh, the different ways that uh, fear influences the body, the way we can have uh, body reactions, getting tense, feeling the heart beating more, uh, you know, again, the physiology of the body and brain is there's, there's often more sweat, there's often a very, very clear focus, uh, all of which have been developed as evolutionary strategies that help us to survive. Again, Fear can be um, caught up with confusion and unskillful response as well. But there, there can be a way that we work with fear in a skillful way. So noticing the body, noticing, you know, sometimes uh, a sense could be of the body shutting down some. You know, again, uh, at the level of responding to fear, we have those three key ways of responding um, you know, fight, flight, or freeze. Those are the typical responses connected with a danger, a significant danger. And, the, and we can notice the body, you know, the, the, you know, some connected more with freezing, you know, the body shutting down or a sense of paralysis and some connected more with fighting, you know, the hands clenching and so forth. We, so it's actually helpful to know which of those three ways of responding to something fearful we're, we're involved with. So the, the encouragement is when there's fear, really to study what it's like in the body. And then also study what my typical mental patterns are when there's fear. You know, sometimes there's a really clear focus. Sometimes, particularly when we are unskillfully uh, caught up in fear, 
there can be confusion. There can be a lack of ability to think clearly, right? There can be uh, the proliferation of thoughts, the repetition of fearful narratives, right? That's especially, you know, what I, I like to encourage us to look at. Notice the repetition of fearful thoughts and narratives, very, very common, you know. Um, you know, we, we, that we, last time I, I brought up the, um, the model of the ladder of inference, and um, maybe we, let's bring that up now, uh, Carlita, if that's handy. Now, this is a, this is a model which comes from uh, Chris Argeris, uh, who uh, worked, brought this in actually at, at business school, and it's, it's, I explained it last time, but it's a simple model which is really meant to describe a way that our experience works. We have kind of an infinite pool of observable data and experiences. Like right now, our minds could go in a thousand or a million different ways. We may be mostly focusing on my words, but we could go towards the past, towards the future. I could focus, you know, look at my plant growing six feet away. I could go in endless, endless ways. But out of that infinity of possible data, we select only a few in any given moment to pay attention to. So that's where I go up the ladder, I select certain data, and then I select, I, I uh, have certain data experiencing, I'm hearing the words, maybe I'm focusing on the ideas, uh, and then I add meanings. You know, I might say, oh, that ladder of inference is interesting. I'll, you know, I'll look it up on the web or whatever. Then we go further into generalizations, we make assumptions, we draw conclusions, we adopt beliefs, and we take actions based on the beliefs. And the reason I like to bring this up in terms of the experience of fear is that painful experiences or difficult experiences will often lead us to go up the ladder, uh, often in ways that are not so helpful, that we may go into, you know, I, because our mind wants to have some clarity, we may have, uh, I don't know, it could be my boss makes a comment about my work and I, um, for the next 48 hours, I focus on it. I, I draw all sorts of conclusions, which may or may not be accurate. I get fixated, I go up the ladder, and I think, oh, I'm going to be fired. And I repeat this to myself a hundred times, right? So we want to notice tendencies to go up the ladder. What's skillful often to do when we're noticing the mind racing and going to generalizations is to see if we can go down the ladder and actually maybe be with the fear or just be with what the emotions are, what's there in the body. And this is also a very useful model. I use this a lot in teaching on conflict because, again, painful experiences will draw us up the ladder where we get caught in narratives and generalizations. What we want to generally do, and this is what peacemakers do, you know, if we think of two sides who are each caught in their own negative narrative about the other side, what, what a um, mediator does or what a uh, a skillful conflict worker does is you bring the two sides down basically to the raw experience. Can let, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh said, I bring the suffering of one side to the other side and the suffering of that second side back to the first side. This is going down the ladder. And so the model can be helpful going down the ladder as much as, as possible and just being with direct experience. Again, this can be a tool let's say when two friends have a difficult time together, it, one way to do it is just to let the two people talk. And I've, I've done this sometimes. I've been a mediator in a number of situations where you see if you can create a situation where both people talk without blaming the others, without using blaming or judging language, try to talk from their own experience. This is what, this is what happened to me. Oh, when you said that, I felt a lot of anger. That is going down rather than saying, you know, you always do this or that. 
right? And so that's why I think uh, presenting the latter can be very, very helpful to watch what happens when, when our mind is caught in fear. We'll go up to generalizations like that. So you can ask yourself, am I going up the ladder? Great, so let's, let's go back now, Carlita. So the first whole area of practice is mindfulness, and it's also can be very helpful to bring in the wisdom dimension, to look at causes and conditions. And I think I'll go more into this when I go to the social world, but we can, you know, we can look at, uh, you know, uh, we can look at a particular situation that maybe is fearful and see if we can see causes and conditions, you know. Um, you know, maybe someone, again, someone says something to me that I get reactive to and get fearful about, and maybe I can bring some wisdom and say, oh, that person was saying that for this, this reason. So there's a certain amount of thinking, but that can be helpful. And again, maybe I'll go into more detail on that in a moment. What I'm calling the second area of response is bringing in the heart practices. And, you know, I particularly focused on metta, and metta can work in a few different ways. Last time I talked about how one of the key responses to fear, particularly when the fear is too strong for mindfulness, and I use that Olympic diver scale 1 to 10, very helpful to know when fear is occurring, what level is it from 1 to 10? And when it's maybe 7 or below, we can often work with mindfulness, and that's a very good first strategy. When it's uh, 8 or 9 or 10 and it's too much and our bodies are taken over, then we sometimes want to do what I call antidotes, which we looked at last time some. Antidotes, sort of a medical term, it means that what we use to shift away from something in which we're stuck or caught. And this is, can be uh, fear, it could be really, really caught in anger, really caught in repetitive narratives, some way that we actually can't be mindful because we're stuck. And this is when we use antidotes. Antidotes can be uh, of multiple kinds. One of the most helpful antidotes, when we have a strong loving kindness or metta practice, metta can be really, really helpful for fear. And I think I mentioned last time that the the Buddha, actually, according to one of the stories, gave metta as an antidote to fear to a group of practitioners who were living in the forest and were uh, having the local tree spirits uh, torment them. The tree spirits said originally the practitioners, fine if you stay here, but then they thought that the practitioners had overstayed their welcome, and so they started manifesting bad smells really bad smells and horrible visions, the uh, practitioners got freaked out, went back to the Buddha, and the Buddha said, I think metta practice is really good for your situation. It's an antidote. So he, he brought them back. The bad smells kept on happening. The horrible visions, they did metta. They were able to stay balanced doing loving-kindness practice. And they eventually, they won over the tree spirits who said, we like this metta. You can be our friends. No more bad smells. No more horrible visions. Okay, we're friends. You know, and so, and they lived happily ever after. Right. And so, and something that uh, maybe you've worked with too, I've worked a number of times when there was fear with loving kindness. I think I've told, I don't think I told it this uh, last time, but I had experience uh, probably about, I don't know, about 15 years ago, where I was at a retreat where I was camping, and they gave me a place to, to uh, uh, camp where a bear had been there like a week before. Carlita, I don't think I told this yet in the series today. Anyway, a bear had been there, but they said, we found the bear and we took it 50 miles away. And I said, oh, it's a really nice spot. I'll camp there. And then you know the rest, right? When it got to be night, I went back to my campsite you know, rather than just going instantly to sleep, what did I think about? The bear, right? And the bear was on my mind. 
And it took a little while. I was just thinking about the bear, and you know how it is in that kind of situation. Every twig sound becomes the bear is coming, <laughs> the bear is near, right? And, uh, you know, I stayed with that for a while, and then I thought, oh, metta, loving kindness practice. And it suddenly occurred to me. And, um, you know, there was a lot of fear, and it, it was a real bear that was somewhere nearby, but hopefully 50 miles. And I did loving kindness practice, but it actually took me three hours. I did loving kindness practice for the next three hours, well past midnight. And uh, after three, and I did it mostly for myself and others, but sometimes for the bear. And after, uh, after three hours, something settled. It was interesting. Something just felt enough calm. And I went right to sleep. And I stayed there for the rest of the week. And I had no other thoughts about the bear for the rest of the week. It was interesting, right? It was loving kindness acting as an antidote. And something happened and something settled. Because I think rationally I knew it's extremely unlikely for the bear to be near me. It was sent 50 miles away. You know, there are plenty of campers 50 miles away. <laughs> no, no, sorry about that. Um, anyway, um, and I've, I have experienced that in other settings where I also worked with loving kindness Sometimes when there's been a lot of fear, the loving kindness has to be pretty well developed to be strong enough. That's an important point. And I, I tend to define strong enough, uh, as they say, operationally by saying, if you do it 10 minutes a day and do it every day, it should be strong enough for something more intense, like I described, or more for just the, the common times that we wake up at 3 a.m., and start, it doesn't have to be fear, but maybe start judging ourselves or getting caught up with something that happened yesterday, right? How many people experience that from time to time, right? So you can use loving kindness as an antidote, but it has to be strong enough, right? And so do it every day if you want it to be there. And you can use other practices like compassion and so forth. Uh, other times when the fear is strong, uh, it might be it might work better for you to take a walk, do something physical. That's another kind of antidote. Uh, talk to a friend. Uh, you know, um, be with something beautiful and inspiring. Could be music. Could be being, you know, in the wilds, being with beautiful flowers or trees. Those will tend to soothe the nervous system with fear. You know that uh, beauty is a really powerful antidote and also something generally good to hang out with, right? I recommend uh, at least 10 minutes a day of beauty practice. Not, not one of the, something I made up, not one of the traditional practices, but it's, can be, it's an antidote and can be very helpful. And a traditional antidote to fear was come bringing to mind what brings about faith and confidence and a sense of support. It could be thinking about one's teachers, thinking about, could be thinking about the Buddha, bringing a teaching to mind. So these are um, at least four different kinds of antidotes. You know, and then uh, skillful action can also be really, really helpful if there is a way that one can act in relation to fear. And I think I'll, I'll say more about that in relationship to the social realm. And then I think I'll mention something that's very important to me, which I mentioned earlier, which is that as we awaken, as we grow, as we develop in wisdom and compassion and self-knowledge and so forth, there often are new stages of learning where there can be fear. Really important to know. If you've been a longtime practitioner, and suddenly you notice yourself with fear, this is not abnormal, right? That fear arises as part of the human journey, often when we go into a new phase. You know, it could be, could be anything. It could be we deepen in some way, 
and we notice uh, a fear that that we haven't noticed before. You know, one thing that I noticed, for example, about 10 years into my practice was, and I don't know, don't know if I've mentioned this, but it's, um, I noticed at a retreat that I was afraid of the present moment. But I only noticed this because my mind got really, really quiet. And I noticed that I was trying to control at a subtle level every moment of experience. And when I, my interpretation would be, I got deep enough and I saw this fear, which had been in operation probably virtually all my life, kind of subtly trying to control the present moment, not being fully comfortable, just opening to the present moment. I think I did mention this because I remember asking people, how many of you had that sense of, how many of you have had something like that sense? I remember that, right? And, and so for me, this was something, a fear, which only opened up at a, at a deeper level of practice. You know, and, and similarly, even in the Buddhas talking about the stages of awakening, you know, at a certain stage of awakening, one uh, gives up attachment to rites and rituals, you know, which could be interpreted as saying, because of an underlying fear, we sort of grasp on to a ritual, right? Or we grasp on to this. And at a certain point, we let it go. We let go of a certain fear. But often it's when the fear needs to appear. We become aware that we're we're afraid, you know, and there's, um, there's a powerful teaching that I th I'm thinking of doing in June that uh, comes out of the Catholic tradition. It's called the teaching of the dark night of the soul. And how many of you know some about this, the dark night of the soul? It, it comes from the 16th century, uh, St. John of the Cross, you know, and, you know, I, uh, I, I may go into more depth uh, next time. I think, I, you know, maybe I'll ask for a show of hands a little bit after I talk about this some. Um, but there is a way that um, St. John said, and he was describing his own experience, at a certain level of practice, and it's not a beginning level, but more intermediate or advanced, there is a sense of one's own spirituality drying up. There's a sense of uh, almost like a loss of faith. This is, this is from St. John of the Cross from the 16th century. One sense of spiritual connection. All the spiritual maps seem to dry up. Practices become tasteless. He said, God weans them so that they become strong. This seems very strange. Everything seems backward, you know. And then later... For some, there is a second, more difficult stage. The religious and spiritual concepts have been dismantled. It may look like a crisis of faith and may last for years, and there can be a lot of fear and anxiety here. We enter into a radical unknowing. We don't know what's what, right? This is, he called this the dark night. We don't know what's happening. We have to you know, have an underlying faith that continues. There can be a lot of fear during this time. St. John said, what we have to do is keep our eyes shut and walk the path in darkness, right? Interesting, isn't it? He says, this is again, Christian language. He says, the soul walks to God through human unknowing, right? And again, can be a lot of fear because we don't know. This is the dark night of the soul. And there are ways that this also appears in many other traditions. You know, I, I want to mention just one. In shamanism, there's something very similar to the dark night. Uh, Joan Halifax, a scholar of shamanism, says, the most usual pat pattern of becoming a shaman in older cultures involves the experience of an encounter with psychological and physical suffering. The encounter with illness, suffering, and death opens the sacred world to the shaman. It also provides an experiential ground for the work of social, personal, and environmental healing that the shaman will later be doing. 
This is uh, a Huichol indigenous shaman named Matsawa. He said towards the end of his life, I have pursued my apprenticeship for 64 years. During these years, many, many times have I gone to the mountain alone. Yes, I have endured great suffering during my life. Yet to learn to see, to learn to hear, you must do this, go into the wilderness alone. For it is not I who can teach the ways of the gods. Such things are learned only in solitude. You know, a lot of, a lot of fear, a lot of difficulty, a lot of pain. And so that, and what I'm suggesting is, that seems to be a normal part of deepening in multiple spiritual traditions. And how many would be interested in more depth on the dark night of the soul in another, in another gathering? Okay, I see a lot of people. So I'll think about that for next time. And it also can be fun because I, I have some, uh, I have a bunch of images and slides from St. John and from, from others. So I'll think about that. And so the last, last part of the talk, I want to go into fear in relation to the social dimension. And again, here it's helpful to think of the, the ways of practicing mindfulness and wisdom, heart practices, and skillful action. And so, but first of all, it's helpful just to look at the different fears that are there. And this is something I've actually been hearing from people I work with uh, in the last, actually the last few weeks also connected with the killings in Buffalo. You know, I think we know in the last, what, in the last, in the last uh, two weeks, you know, uh, racist killings in Buffalo, killings of Asian Americans at a Taiwanese temple in uh, Southern California, and then killing of, I think, mostly Latino people in Texas, right? Um, the, these killings. And, of course, we could, could go back to others. So one of the, one of the, um, one, one of the treasures of my own teaching is that I talk to people about what's on their mind, and they're often very intimate. And I've heard from you know, many, many people about their fears in relationship to the social world, whether, and again, some of it was mentioned uh, last week in our group, but it could be fears, fears of violence, you know. Uh, you know, there's a high level of violence, uh, certainly in the United States. I think I mentioned that I've had the experience when I've been in other countries where there's less, you know, less, uh, I don't know what we call it, street violence, a feeling just without even thinking about it, a certain, you know, level of uh, settling. You know, like when I've gone to uh, Canada, you know, sometimes, you know, even though, of course, the history of Canada is filled with violence, but it's not there in the same way. You know, I know that from having visited indigenous communities in Canada, you know, and knowing the history of that, you know. Uh, but but still, in terms of a kind of a day-to-day fear of violence. It's, it's, there's a lot in the, in the United States. You know, uh, many people I've talked to, they have a fear of the decline of democracy, right? That their, their fears, you know, and most of the people I talked to recently are more, I'm probably on one end of the political spectrum, but, you know, I can think of, um, one of the things that I valued a lot from the time I, when I lived seven years in uh, Kentucky and rural Ohio, was having access to people across the spectrum, you know, and talking with people. So I think there, there are many other fears of people at other parts of the political spectrum, whatever, economic fears, you know, which are, which are very real, you know, fear of the, you know, connected with the decline of uh, manufacturing in the United States, you know, and there are the counterpart elsewhere. You know, there's um, fears that we won't deal with our issues, you know, and I know, you know, I, I've mentioned, I think, from time to time that when I was in college, I worked uh, one summer in the U.S. Congress. And it was a shocking experience in many ways. You know, I learned a lot. But one thing that was shocking was I got the very clear sense, and this was a long time ago, that uh, people in the U.S. Congress 
were not fundamentally interested in dealing with the issues of the country. They were primarily interested in re-election. And if re-election coincided with dealing with the problems, well, well, great. <laughs> but, um, and that was kind of shocking for me as like a, an 18-year-old, right, to see that. You know, and I think it could even be worse now, right? You know, maybe not across the board, but for many people in Congress, it's more about political power than about dealing with the issues. So that could be a fear. We won't deal with it. You know, um, fear of sort of the white supremacy expanding and being more out front, certainly manifesting in Buffalo. Could be fears related to that. Uh, fears of tendencies at scapegoating. Very, very pronounced uh, throughout U.S. history, but, uh, you know, I think in other countries, of course, as well. You know, and then, you know, of course, we can mention uh, fears related to climate disruption, right? And, you know, there's a way that uh, um, some people uh, talk about there being a kind of a global collective dark night of the soul, right? You know, this is, um, let's see, this is from uh, Andrew Harvey. He says, for 30 years now, I believe three related truths, that the exploding global crisis we're in is in essence an evolutionary crisis, one whose outcome, on whose outcome depends the future of the human race and a great deal of the natural world. There we go. Okay. What we lost that? you for a bit there, Donald. Oh, okay. Am I back? You are now. Yeah, but I think we lost part of what you were sharing. Okay, you lost the quotation. Yes. Yeah. So this was Andrew Harvey saying that the, that the global crisis we're in is a kind of collective dark night of the soul. It's a, he also describes it as a spiritual crisis with two phases, that of the dark night process and that of the potential birth that makes possible an embodied divine humanity that the birthing forces of this new humanity he calls sacred activism, the marriage of profound and universal spiritual stamina, faith, passion, compassion, and urgent inspired wise action in every realm of human life. And I was also thinking of um, uh, Greta Thunberg, you know, the, the young Swedish activist who, who said, I, who I think went through a, a long period of fear and anxiety. She said she started reading about the climate crisis when she was nine years old. She became very depressed. She said, I fell into depression. I was so depressed. I didn't see any point in living because everything was so wrong. And of course that led to action, right, on her part. You know, so being with that fear, being, you know, the second area is the heart practices, having compassion for I think those on all parts of the political spectrum, really, really crucial now, not compassion just for some. And so uh, there, are ways, there are ways of doing that and ways of touching our own pain, developing compassion. And, you know, I'll mention then also the crucial aspect of skillful action in relation to our world. And one thing I've worked with sometimes with people is... Um, who say, I'd like to act, but I don't know how to act. And then, so I work with them. I often say, how much time do you have for action? You know, do you have five hours a week? And they say, yes, I've, I've got five hours a week. What issue do you want to work with? And I ask them to say, determine which issue. And then I say, okay, research possible organizations where you can do skillful action five hours a week, maybe at a distance. And I've worked with a number of people and they come up with it and they make a commitment. And I think that large numbers of people doing something like that is the way out of the current situation. Making something that's not too much, but skillful action. Action alleviates anxiety. Action is a direct response to fear. So I think I'll end with uh, a story from the life of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Okay, this was uh, this is a story from 
his initial campaign in Montgomery, Alabama, 1955. He was a, a new minister in Montgomery, and he was, um, he had been receiving many uh, threatening phone calls, and he had also recently been in jail. And he got a phone call, and that time they didn't have answering machines. He got a phone call, and the person used the uh, N-word and said, we are tired of you and your mess now. If you aren't out of this town in three days, we're going to blow your brains out and blow up your house. And he could not, uh, he got that call late, like uh, at midnight. And his uh, family was asleep. He had like uh, two young ones and his wife were asleep. And it was around midnight. And he, he went into fear and uncertainty. He was close to giving up. He was, remember, he was young. Uh, he was young. I think he was, what, 26 years old. And he uh, had just been with this uh, campaign for a while. And he contemplated the anguish of possibly losing his daughter or his wife. And he couldn't find strength. He couldn't, he thought about his parents who were in Atlanta. He couldn't find strength there. And then he basically hung out with the fear. Can you hear me okay, Carlita? Okay, yeah. He hung out with the fear, and this is what he later said. He got a cup of coffee, and he said, I bowed down over that cup of coffee. I never will forget it. I prayed a prayer and prayed out loud. That night I said, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I think I'm right. I think the cause we represent is right. But I have to confess that I'm weak now. I'm faltering. I'm losing my courage. And he said later, it seemed at that moment that I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And I will be with you even unto the end of the world. I heard the voice, he said, of Jesus saying, still to fight on, he promised never to leave me, never to leave me, never alone, never alone. He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. And he said that, he said later, almost at once, my fears began to go. My uncertainty disappeared. A few days later, his home was bombed. And his wife and daughter were in the house while he was at church. He was given word of the bombing and spoke briefly at the podium. And I think he knew at that point that his wife and daughter were okay. But he's, he, the people who heard him were amazed at the level of steadiness and calm that he expressed after his home, right after his home had been bombed. And he said later, my experience a few nights before had given me the strength to face this. So I'll stop there. Let's take just a moment to be with whatever's there that has life for you from our, from our exploration of fear. And see if there's something you'd like to share or to ask about. We can start with uh, Carolyn, please. Hi. Um, briefly. Quebec and Ontario had a storm and a tree fell outside my window. I didn't know the tree had come down on my roof. I just saw, I'm sitting here, I looked and I saw the tree, the, and I went into paralysis, which is what I do. But I did not, I knew I was scared but I didn't realize that it had stayed. And I walked over to my neighbors 
and I talked with them and I thought I was fine. And I went to get up and I fell. And I was shocked at the level of fear that I wasn't skillfully conscious of. That's what I have to say. Yeah. Thank, thanks, Carolyn. And um, again, it can be sometimes when that fear is at just a really high level, it's helpful to just think in your mind antidote or what helps me shift out of it. You know, because that the level you're describing, I think, is too much most likely for the mindfulness. You know, and so you can uh, that could be that could be something to remember. You know, and it can take time to remember. Like my example with the bear, it took a while for me, even though I you know practiced metta a long time, it took a while to remember. But if you just think about that antidote, antidote or your own language, that that would be a way of responding. You know, and uh, coming coming back to balance. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that. We have Jason, please. Hi, Donald. Uh, thank you again for your 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 uh, running this this uh, this uh, this uh, sangha. Um, my my question is, I don't know if it can be addressed in a simple way, but I agree with you that that action reduces. Um, the intensity of, of the fear. Yeah. But I, it, it's the question of whether my action is skillful. Yeah. How does one know whether the action decided upon or undertaken is in fact skillful? Yeah. What are, what are some general ways for knowing whether the action is skillful? Um, the starting point is that, you know, here we can think about the, uh, way that in traditional Buddhist training, action would come under the realm of ethics. So first we would want to see, am I using, uh, am I uh, being ethical? Am, is there non-harming? Am I using skillful speech? So you can check in a few different areas, you know, and maybe you could, could just, uh, you know, some of it's the process. Uh, am I being skillful with my speech? Am I treating people well? And so forth, right? And that, you know, maybe you're taking those for granted and they're already there. But, you know, then if, are you asking partly about will my action bring about the ends that I want? Is that partly? Well, I, I guess I, I, I'm not certain what, what criteria one uses to determine. Is it, is it, the, is it the result? Is it, yeah. is it making me feel better? Is it making the other person feel better? I mean, how does one know yeah. or understand what criteria do you put up and say, you know, this is what I want to accomplish? Especially if you're in a confrontational situation and, and you want to do it skillfully, but yeah. you want to also draw a line. Yeah, I think um, again, um, we, we if we had a specific example, we could could be more specific. But if I would say talk in in general terms, uh, I would say one of the things that will assure us being more skillful is to have an integration of our inner practice with the outward action. That's going to be very crucial, and it's often lost, and you know, it's not even there in a lot of models of activism. You know, I think that's what um, Andrew Harvey was pointing to, like he called it sacred activism, you know, that there's a, an integration. So, you know, when I'm acting, am I mindful? You know, do I hold others in empathy and compassion, you know, even if I disagree with them? Uh, <clears throat> though, uh, do I bring in these kind of practices? Am I attached to the outcome? You know, those sort of things. So, um uh, I don't usually do this, but I, I would say I have this book, The Engaged Spiritual Life, and there are about uh, 250 further pages of response to your question. <laughs> well, I knew it was a big question. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. Please, uh, Victoria. Yes. Thank you, Donald. Um, I apologize for my voice. I'm, I'm in a COVID-ridden family right now. Oh, my. Um, but I didn't want to miss today. Um, I, I was very moved um, by the, the Martin Luther King story, which I, which I knew already, but you told it really beautifully. So I wanted to thank you for that. It was very, oh, um, it really came alive. And it reminded me of my favorite 
um, verse in the Bible, which is from First John four eighteen. I can put it in the chat. Actually, if people want to look it up, um, it's very simple. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I was thinking how beautifully the Christian tradition and the um, well other spiritual traditions, um, Judaism and <laughs> Buddhism, like you've talked about, um, that realize the the power of the heart. Mm-hmm. And um, and actually, that leads to a qu- quick question, which was: When you talk about the heart practices, are you referring to the Brahma Vihara? Is that what you mean by that? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm using it uh, in Buddhist tradition. Um, the Brahma Vihara, what Sylvia is teaching on this weekend, are four of the heart practices, and those are the main ones identified: loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Uh, when I teach, I like to bring in three others and call them honorary members of the Brahma Vihara. <laughs> uh, and those are gratitude and forgiveness and empathy. Yeah, mm. those are those are distinct practices, and those sort of give a kind of seven different heart practices, which can really help tremendously. Yeah, but that was thank you. That's a beautiful quotation from uh, from John. Yeah. yeah, I I wanted to say just in terms of its power, I have I have used that so many times in situations where people were totally desperate and sort of I I've you know I once met a woman who whose husband had just been deployed and um, she was terrified that she'd never see him again and mm. I just told her that one verse and and she it was like her you know she was sobbing and everything sort of relaxed it was really it's very powerful that love is the real antidote to fear. So anyway, I'll make room for others, but thank you. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's a big one. Yeah, others, uh, please. Others want to share something, ask something? I think if you don't know how to do raised hand, I can see everyone on the screen if you want to raise your hand. Okay. Okay, going once. Can also ask a question in the chat. Yeah, it's a lot. We've taken on a lot with this theme of fear and then connecting it with the uh, current event. Steve, please, maybe the last one. Um, Yes, I'm, I'm about to go to a retreat called Heart of Now, which is about connecting in a really deep, level with the other people and helping helping the people there deal with their life trauma and I, I participated in this for about 10 years now as an assistant and in the past it was all um, it was held at a, a retreat place that was it was vegetarian mm-hmm. and I just learned last night that they've dropped the vegetarian they're going to eat meat at this thing and um I find it very distressing. It's mm-hmm. it's, it's like I'm, I'm really distressed about it, like because it seems like um, a loss of heart to me. Mm-hmm. Like, and um, I'm 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 kind of, I'm struggling with how how do I respond to this because I'll be going there next week to participate to assist it and and I want to share some of my feelings about it, but I'm not sure yeah. quite the best way to do it. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I'm sure many can relate to that. Um, Yeah, I think I would, again, probably hold the perspective, uh, you know, even as you can have, you know, the view that this, you know, is um, not helpful on a few different levels. There's, There's certainly a reason for it. So maybe kind of lead with empathy. What's the reason that they're doing this, you know? And you know it, you know, and see see what that is, right? And uh, you know, and and maybe to talk with them about your concerns. And maybe you don't know all the details. It may be that there, you know, maybe or maybe you do know. But you know, is for example, is meat going to be an option, or is meat going to be the main offering? Or are there going to be provisions for vegans or vegetarians? 
So I think I would lead with, you know, lead with just trying to understand where the people who made the decision are coming from. That's, you know, that's often a good place to lead from without agreeing. You know, it doesn't mean you agree with it. And there might be a different decision. And then if you, if you could, you know, see, you know, do your own inner work with your own reactivity, you know, to the extent that you're not balanced. And, and I think, and then in, in, you know, hopefully you'll be able to communicate with them. They'll be able to hear what your uh, emotions and thoughts are, your own response. And to see if you can, when you talk with them, do that as much as possible without blaming and judging, without reactivity, but also truly really to tune in. You know, I feel how whatever it is, I feel very concerned. I feel angry, or you know, to, uh, so it's really um, an effort at skillful, uh, skillful communication, uh, and involving empathy, involving. Uh, uh, really coming from your own experience, but but having done inner work to work through reactivity, and it may they may or may not be receptive, right? You know, hopefully they would be, and you know the the issues are pretty obvious around the, these things. But you know, from a distance, I don't know what their reasons were, and I'd want to tune into that and be open to respecting it, even if you don't agree with it. So I hope that helps. Yeah, I, I was. Yeah, that's helpful. I was wondering last night about why are they doing this? I don't know why, and I was thinking of asking yeah. why, and that helpful, yeah, to start with trying to understand why they're making this change. Yeah, and, and there, I'm, I imagine there are reasons, maybe maybe good reasons, Not even if, you know, if you were in the position, you would do it differently. Yeah. And, you know, think of, you know, presumably these are people you have a long-term relationship, so think of it as you know that you really you value the relationship and you treat them with as if they're valued and respect respected which maybe i don't need to say that but but it's good to remember when something is an intense issue like this <laughs> yeah, thank thank you thanks That's thanks helped. so much uh rosie i see you have your hand is there a way that you can be like brief in 30 seconds or a minute I can be um, very brief. Um, one of the things that I put as my top five fears is worries and fears about loved ones, families, and you're in my you know, family. And yesterday I heard that my son and my and his wife and my three grandkids all have COVID. Mm -hmm. So, of course, I went into, you know, super fear. And what I found is it's been really helpful because my fear and worry doesn't do a thing for them. What I have been doing is shifting and sending them meta. And mm -hmm. that's really helped a lot, you know. So it went right along with what you said today. Yeah. It really is an antidote. Um, so yeah. thank you. Yeah, the antidote, and then you know when when you feel like it, also study the uh, study the metta with the mindfulness. Yeah. Well, those, yeah. those combine great combination. <laughs> Thank okay. you. Thank thanks, you thanks, so Ro much. Thanks, Rosie. Great. So we'll finish in two steps. First is to just bring to mind what may have been helpful from our time together. And any ways that you'd like to continue from the themes of today and previous weeks related to practicing with fear, or perhaps something else came up that you want to continue with. What's your, what's your sense of intentions coming out of our time together? And we close with the dedication of merit. May our time together be of benefit to, to us, to those in our own circles. And then going beyond our own circles, may our time together be ultimately of benefit to all beings, knowing that that includes us and everyone in our own circles.
So thank you, everyone, and I'll, I'll do my goodbye, if you'd like to. And if you want to unmute and just say goodbye, feel free to do that. It's good to see everyone. Bye-bye. Feel free yes. to unmute. Yeah. Thank you very much, and have a great day. Bye-bye. Thanks, Donald. Thank you, Donald. Thank you, Carlotta. Just sit with you all this morning. Thank you. Till next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. We appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank you, Carlita. Yay, Carlita. Yay. Carlita. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Have a good day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.